to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 739, August 27th, 2023. I'm Jim McDowell, hosting the show, and with me from across the pond, Richard Jallet in merry old England. Richard, it's been a while. Yes, uh, good afternoon, Jim. It has been a little while, for which we, I suppose, uh, co-apologize to all the listeners, but uh, it's just been cr- kind of crazy busy, isn't it, with lots of stuff going on, and lots of races as well, so we've got some catching up to do. Yes, we do. I think you you used the phrase pushing water uphill. Yeah, uh, I think that's a sort of a must be an English colloquialism. In America, <laughs> we'd say burning the candle at both ends, but I'd have to change that to burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. Yeah, for me. it's been <laughs> so, like that. Kind of like it's that. been like that, guys. We're sorry that we've taken this long to get here, but there's some good things to come. And uh, it's just been hectic. Uh, again, Rich and I have jobs, which is part of the problem. But uh, we're here. We're going to talk about it. And let's just, I think we just start out. Let's just uh, dive right in, Rich, with the news. Yeah. It's silly season in MotoGP. So there's a lot to cover with this one. And we're just going to jump right in. So the first thing of interest Triumph has agreed to be the Moto2 engine supplier for another five years. I think this is fantastic, Rich. Yeah, I agree. Um, they've done a brilliant job if you think about it. I can't think of a, hardly a single engine failure since they came into the championship. So it's a solid engine. It sounds really good, certainly compared to the old Honda 600 that they ran before, which I never really could get behind the sound that those things made. So, yeah, I'm I'm very pleased. And, you know, Triumph is a heritage name, so it's good to see it at the forefront of motorsport. I agree. I think the only suspect piece of it at the beginning was maybe the transmission. few people had some issues with the transmissions, but yeah. or the gearboxes, I think, is probably more accurate and descriptive. Uh, but I think they got over top of that. I think they got around what was going on there and they've moved on with it. I love the sound of the triple. I think it's unique. You definitely know when those bikes are on track. And I think it's been a lot of signage I've seen around the tracks for Triumph. So it looks like it's been a win-win-win. Although it is going to be interesting to see Moto2 bikes on Pirelli's next year as well. Yes, so. yeah. Mm. So, uh, first thing. Uh, so, second thing on the list. Sam Lowe's is moving to World Superbike on a Ducati, and it will be in Mark VDS color. So, Mark VDS is expanding their reach now into another world championship, into World Superbike. Now, I think it's a good move for Sam. I think his time in the MotoGP paddock has, has left him. I'm not sure what's happened to him other than being injury riddled. So maybe it's a bit too much for Sam. I think he's a great rider. I think luck has definitely been against him, but I think he will thrive in a less business paddock, for lack of a better definition. Yeah, uh, I was listening to, I think it might have been his crew chief being interviewed by somebody, possibly over the Silverstone making when when this news sort of first kind of came out, or, or the first time they had a proper chance to discuss it on the MotoGP feed anyway. And it was kind of suggested that part of his discontentment in Moto2 now is because things like the morning warm-up have been taken away, and he just doesn't feel that there's enough running. So whilst you might conclude that he's kind of barren out because he's been around a long time and he's getting a bit older, I think he's actually the opposite. I think he's relishing the chance to go over to World Superbike and have three races a weekend and a lot more time on track. So and of course don't let's forget he is the World Super or was the World Super Sport champion a good few years ago now. So he's very familiar with that paddock as well and, and that overall series. So yeah he's kind of going home 
to some extent. So yeah, I think it's a really good move, and it's a big commitment by Mark VDS to expand out to a you know World Superbike. That is a tough championship. Don't be under any illusions. So I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's quite a big move that. Yep, I do. It's kind of like a homecoming. I think a lot of Brits sort of excel in that World Superbike paddock. Yeah, you know, very few have excelled in the MotoGP paddock. It, I think it's maybe it just has to do with there's a lot more Brits that are in <laughs> that World Superbike paddock. I was sort of traditionally have been that way since World Superbikes come on, and it seems as though that basically the the MotoGP paddock is dominated by Spanish and Italian riders. So yeah it's just maybe and just not home <laughs> I, was, I was saying to, to my wife so we were part of the reason why we've been absent for a little while down to me this one is that i went on holiday to spain for two weeks and so driving around in you know the hills of andalusia and stuff you can see why it is the spaniards are so bloody good on on motorbikes because they basically get all year round riding on empty beautiful mountain roads in certain parts of the country you know you can just imagine them sort of flying through the hills and stuff on bikes constantly all year round whereas in britain yeah, that's just very, very different. And since Superbike came along, that was kind of the path that most of the British riders ended up taking. So, yeah, um, but we've got one or two hopes in the GP paddock now. But uh, looking forward to seeing Sam over more Superbike, though. It'll be kind of cool watching him race his brother. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. So who takes his seat in Moto2? Well, that's going to be Philip Slack. He's going over to Mark VDS for that one. Staying with the Moto2 theme, Tony Arbolia, Arbolino, who's in a fight for the World Championship with Pedro Acosta, is staying in Moto2 for next year because there's no seats available. Hmm. That's been a that's a bit of a surprise to us, isn't it? Because we, is. well, certainly I was fairly sure that he was going to be on the Grassini MotoGP bike next to Alex Marquez. I would have thought that would have happened too. But I think there's some skullduggery going on behind Uh, the scenes that have caused a few people to get disappointed. But I suppose the other thing that might be partly behind this as well is that Tony Arbolino might be figuring that the championship this year is likely to go into the hands of a certain Pedro Acosta. So he might want to hang around to have another crack at it next year, perhaps. Uh... Ooh, I don't think so. I but well, I think the door has been shut though. Anyway, in terms of yeah, the MotoGP think... ride, because you would obviously Correct. take that if it was available. So yeah, yeah, I think he would have. I don't think he cares about whether he wins a World uh, Moto Two World Championship or not. I don't, it's definitely he didn't decide to stay. He's forced to stay because there's really nothing else he could get. No room at the end. Yeah, yeah. So it's that's that's it's sad, but I well, you know, it's just what happens. We do know that uh, Jake Dixon is staying. Uh, he's going to stay with Aspar along with Guevara. So that's settled. But all the rumors of Jake going to MotoGP, they're done. Um, yeah. So Connection. he's staying. I, I'd like to see Jake do better in Moto2. I mean, he is a talent. He does have, he can run with the big guys. I just wish he had just that smidge more consistency. It's, there's days when Jake is at his best and you're not going to touch him, but we need more days that Jake's at his best every weekend. Yeah, I, I think in his defense, I would say, not that you're really criticizing him, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to wish to see that, but this is his best Moto2 season to date, and he, and he has been a lot more consistent this year, but there are still a few disappointments and bits of maybe a couple of bits of bad luck along the way as well, but he's won his first race this year. I mean, I think it was Dorna that had been really, really pushing as much as anything to get jake into the moto gp paddock because you've got firms like well it's tnt now isn't it but they own various channels in the uk now um and there's a lot of pressure 
you know, from the point of view of the British broadcaster, to have a top line rider in MotoGP. And certainly that would be echoed by the likes of Stuart Pringle, the managing director at Silverstone Circuit, because they really need a fast Brit in the top class to help put bums on seats for the Silverstone uh, round, which, again, although the numbers were up this year compared to last, they were still probably, I think, disappointing overall, given how much effort went into that. But we'll come to that a little bit later on. So, yeah, anyway, Jake stays where he is next year. So someone who's Googling up is Masia. He's going from Moto3 to Moto2, and he's going to join Bo Ben Schneider on that team. Uh, you kind of think Masia has spent his time. He spent quite a few years in Moto3, so yeah. it was bound and determined that he was going to go. But that is really the only person that we've heard so far that's moving Moto3 to Moto2. Now, there's probably going to be some more. It's going to be, probably be in the offseason. I think it's going to come down to who can bring money, who's got a contract that can be deleted, uh, you know, it, this isn't just results performance based. Like these guys get there. A lot of this is the cash that they can bring along uh, for the ride. You know, yeah. I never will forget Toby Moody talking to us in, in, at Indy when they had the MotoGPs there, you know, in what was it? 2008, 9, 10, 12, wherever. And he was saying that for his, for Dakota to ride a Moto3 bike, he had to come up with a hundred, hundred thousand euros. And that was when, you know, a, a dollar was like only worth, like 75 cents of a year of a euro right so you're talking about having to be what was a hundred thousand euros is probably closer to like almost 180,000 us mm. to get there so uh you know disappointing but i think it'd be interesting to see mossy up there uh, in there uh, let's move to like the moto g portion of silly season just interesting they've been flashing this all over the tv screen at us for the last two races and we haven't talked about it but in 2024, the fuels that are used in MotoGP have to be at least 40% sustainable, and it has to be 100% sustainable by 2027. I like this idea. I don't have anything against electric bikes, people. I really don't. And I don't have anything, anything against the environment, but we should do our best to be stewards of that environment. And if we can do it with sustainable fuels, and as long as the sustainable fuels aren't purely just ethanol, we're using corn when we need corn to feed people. If we can do it from algaes and uh, other biocells, fair enough. But if it cleans everything up and if whatnot, I'm all for it. I think it's a great way that they're at least leading this charge. Whereas Formula One has sort of sat on the fence in my mind. They haven't fully committed to electric. They haven't fully committed to, to ice. They're in the middle with that hybrid system, which I think is... It would be very difficult for a motorcycle to do hybrid, I think. I think that was just way more, too much weight and complexity that we yeah. really can't put into a motorcycle and go racing with it. We do have the Moto E class, so we shall see where that goes and as we move forward. So to the rider rumor mill, it's rumored that Morbidelli has a ride on Ducati in 2024. The question is where? Does he have a seat at Grassini or does he have a seat at Mooney? Where is it, or, Rich? Well, or, or Pramac, I or would Pramac. Think would, be, would be the more likely place. Well, I think Primac might be the most likely place, but I mean, I don't want to jump around the news too much here, although no, obviously all of this is kind of interlinked, isn't it? It is. So it all we, goes together. Let's just jump forward in your notes a little bit there, Jim. Say Zarco is out of Primac. We know that he's just he has now been officially confirmed at LCR Honda, which is a you know a bit of a surprising development. I think I'm not sure any of us thought that that was going to happen because Zarco has been very ingrained as their kind of de facto race test rider, hasn't he, for quite a long time. So, hmm, curious, but 
here's the very curious thing about Zarco since we're here. He leaves. He goes to LCR. Okay. We know he's sort of Gigi Delinia's favorite test rider. He susses out what they use, and then they move it to the, to the factory bikes. So did Honda poach him? Did Honda open the checkbook and go get Zarco and say, okay, we're going to put you on this LCR bike. We're going to fit you with all the different crazy whatever we're thinking is going to make the factory Repsol bikes faster, and we're going to have you suss it out? It's possible. Yeah. I mean, who it's knows? It's possible. Who knows? Or did Zarco just get tired of playing second fiddle to Martin? Yeah, well, he he kind of came out with a, a fairly direct quote. Uh, I think this was, yeah, this was, I think, on Saturday of the Austria Grand Prix weekend. Basically said, uh, or paraphrasing, a Honda want me more than Ducati do. So I think it, he had not fallen out of favour at Ducati, but I think, you know, you'll have Honda come and poach them because they need a good test and development rider. Which they most certainly do. Oh, they most certainly do. Then it makes sense, doesn't it? And you know, Ducati, a little bit like KTM, are sort of battling this problem of too many riders and not enough bikes. So you know, it was a question of who's left stood up when the music stops, and that appears to have been Zarco. I mean, I was speculating. I thought a good move would have been really for him to have maybe gone to World Superbike, but still done the wildcard rides in MotoGP, of which there are a reasonable number, and and convert continued in that kind of development type role but clearly he wants a full-time MotoGP ride so he isn't done with MotoGP so fair enough and Honda have been prepared to take him on he did do a couple of sub rides or when he walked out of the KTM ride uh, a few years ago Jim you may recall that he did ride the LCR Honda for two or three rounds I think towards the end of the season uh, and he has history with Lucio Cecinello or Cecinello rather sorry uh, from Moto2 I think so you know, it makes sense in a lot of ways, but still surprising, nevertheless. Yeah, it so it caught me off guard, that's for sure. But I understand the logic of what Honda's trying to do in, in a way that's there, which this all kind of goes back to the point that <laughs> this is all tied to it, too. KT, you know, first things about Zarka, he tried a V40, went to KTM, right? And he didn't yeah. like it. He hated it so much he was gone by half a season, right? Yeah. So I'm like... But then Very he came back and he rode the harmonious split. Well, it was acrimonious split. Really it was bad. terrible. And then I thought, well, I thought Zarco's career was over at that point. Again, like you said, he raced a few races in the LCR. He did okay. That was when that bike was a whole heap better than it was than it is now. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if you didn't like the KTM when it was first being developed, how are you going to like the Honda here? I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and he's yeah. jumping off a off a bloody Ducati, Jim, as well. I mean, it's going to be a, a shock, a shock to the system. Correct. I think I much like KTM got really good when Miller showed up. I think you have the same possibility happening with Honda with Zarco because they're going to bring with them the knowledge of how the shapeshifters work. They bring they don't know exactly how it works. Okay, I don't expect those guys to be engineers and understand how that works. What they know is how it's supposed to feel when they do something with it, yeah. and how yeah. fast it's supposed to react or you know, when Zarco comes out of a corner and he hits the lever, hey, this thing should in three seconds be squatted to where I want to be. That's how the Ducati works. It's not halfway down the straightaway is it finally working, that sort of thing. The other thing, too, about this one was that it's kind of interesting that the whole thing with KTM wanting to wanting six bikes, again, all this is inter intertwined, guys. 
that KTM needed once needs six bikes on the grid. Now they wanted a, a factory Husky team and Dornis looked at him and said, Nope, not happening. That's for another factory. You guys really aren't a factory. Husqvarna is not a factory. You guys are just calling it a, K, a KTM, a Husky, and yep. you're calling it a factory team. So no, you don't get a spot. Well, then they immediately went, ran over to Lucanelli's team at LCR. Hey, we want to buy you. We'll, we'll put our bikes in there, factory equipment. To which that that went someplace until Lucanelli said, well, we have a contract. Well, suddenly I admire the fact that, yes, I have a contract. Yes, I honor my contract. I In today's world, I admire that from him. But that offer had to have been pretty damn good, yet he did not take it. Mm. I'm like going, huh. So did you know, but but did Honda then look at them and say, look, we need you because we're going to go post Zarco and we need to put him somewhere to develop the bike and we can't develop it in the factory team. So does that sway what Lucinello does? I Again, I don't know. I'm speculating. But there's a lot that went on here that we don't know really what actually happened. That's all I'm getting at. Well be, Jim. I mean, KTM, let's try and put this as diplomatically as possible. KTM are not recently renowned for their behavior when it comes to contracts. And, and so it might well be that, you know, LCR perhaps don't want to be a satellite for KTM, you know? Perhaps that's part of the factor as well. I mean, Simon Patterson uh, on the race wrote quite a good article online, which I read yesterday, sort of criticising KTM in a reasonably gentle manner, but for getting themselves into this position again, where they're potentially having to sack riders who have contracts because they've over-promised and they can't actually deliver. So they've clearly been running around at breakneck speed, trying to cut deals with people, trying to force Dorna's hand on this um Husqvarna branded bike or whatever it would be and Dorna are standing firm now I suspect Dorna are standing firm because they uh, perhaps uh, understandably and quite rightly think that they will get another manufacturer in and it's kind of linked to well hang on I, I think it's linked to the sustainable fuels thing that may well tempt some uh, you know another manufacturer I mean it could tempt say a Suzuki back potentially because they left for reasons of you know wanting to change their kind of marketing approach to, to what sorts of bikes and what sort of markets they're selling and selling into. Uh, clearly the sustainable fuels thing is, is intended to alleviate some of the corporate pressure that exists around burning fossil fuels and not seeing to be doing the right things. Well, this helps to address some of that. So uh, that would be my guess really, is that Dorna reckon that a BMW or a Suzuki or maybe one of the Chinese brands that, you know, starting to become more and more prevalent. One of those guys might step in and if they've got a, another satellite squad in the way, then that means that they've got then got the problem of, do they expand the grid to even more? Well, I don't, I'm not sure if they can. I, I suspect there's like a, in Formula 1, like a Concord type agreement, and that is the number, and they can't go above it. So, yeah, there's lots of stuff, obviously, politically at play here. Well, I don't know if they wanted, if Dorna really wanted another satellite team, just based on the idea that supposedly the indie teams get propped up by Dorna to a large amount of, I've heard from different people, you know, at the race and stuff to the tune of somewhere between four and 6 million euro. Yeah. It's substantial. It's substantial. Yeah. That's substantial money. And right. Which Dor you Dorna post COVID are still kind of reeling a bit in terms of revenues. Yes. Uh, so that will also be a factor in them not wanting to have to dip their hands into their pockets any deeper than they do already. 
And yep. as you say, find another substantial chunk of money to support one of the independent teams. So, I, yeah, all of this is just not playing in KTM's favour. No, not by any stretch of the imagination. I, uh, You know, again, now, though, that Dorna really wants Yamaha and Honda to be better. So they want to give them concessions. But KTM has steadfastly said, nope, they got themselves into that spot tough. And, hey, you, Honda doesn't need concessions because they got to win. That's all true. But now I think KTM is starting to try to power play the political aspects of what's going on in this paddock. Mm. Because I think they want that six, they want six bikes and they have nowhere else to go. And they really, from their side, they see it as a way to market another brand at a very high level in a world championship. And, you know, essentially you can see if Dorno lets that happen, that you have a KTM Ducati Cup because literally two-thirds of the field would be Ducati and KTM motorcycles. And yeah. you don't want your entire grid made up of two manufacturers supplying everything to it. That happened in World Superbike and nobody liked it. So what happened? The rules got changed to let other people come in. So all of this moves around. It's really becoming... The, MotoGP now is becoming way more political behind the scenes than what we think it is or has been. It's becoming very Formula One-esque about what's going on. There are there are the movers, the shakers, and the power people that are pushing stuff around here that are trying to move and get what they want. And I'm not so sure the sport really needs that or wants it exactly. Because I look at it this way, I always thought that again always with the formula one analogies i know is that when when max and bernie controlled everything with an iron fist i thought the racing was better in formula one now to me i don't think the racing is as good because you let the teams run the show and i don't think you want the same thing to happen here yeah, i think well, that's always should, a mistake yeah that's, that's always, always a mistake always I, a mistake I, right you yeah. can't let the teams write the rules or have control of the rules because they're just going to write it to their favor which yeah. some people will argue that's happened in Formula One. That's why Red Bull's at the top of the heap. You make your own mind about that. Well, some it's... people, Jim, might reasonably argue that that always used to be the case, you know, say back at, towards the latter part of the two-stroke year, where Honda effectively dominated everything. And, you know, it was them that pushed for the four strokes. You know, what Honda wanted, Honda got most of the time, up until the point of the control ECU kind of thing, which was the Dawn saying, well, if you threaten to leave the championship, off you go then. We'll carry on without you. And, so I think it's always been like that, but this just kind of this has all come bubbling up again recently, hasn't it? Because KTM have got themselves in this silly situation where they don't have a bike currently to give to Pedro Acosta. So who do they disappoint in terms of their current rider lineup? And I think Dorna is going to stand firm on this thing. They don't want to pay for another independent team, and they want to leave those grid slots open in the hope that one of the other manufacturers will come across. Yep, I wholeheartedly agree with you. So that's the. That's the biggest question. We we know Acosta's got a contract. We've heard nothing at Silverstone. We've heard nothing in Austria about what's going on. Other than I have a contract to ride a MotoGP bike. Okay. <laughs> so we now know, I think we can say with certainty, the Husqvarna team is not going to show up. Right. No, I mean, we were right that that was definitely a, poss a possible thing that would have happened. And it would be happening if, if Dorna were more amenable to that suggestion. But clearly they... They are not. So that isn't going to happen. Now, that means he's the odd man out. If you, you know, shout out to Gary Shavit, 
what are they going to do with Miller? Miller looked great at the beginning of the year. Miller has done nothing but go backwards since Bender's been developing the bike. Yeah. Bender's got it figured out and Jack doesn't have it figured out or something's changed. So if Jack is running poorly, do you think they could, I mean, they could ax Jack. I mean, Miller isn't doing anything different on the KTM to what he did most of the time on the Ducati. He starts, he starts well and doesn't for whatever reason, I don't understand why, but can't keep a tire alive for a whole race. And I mean, the last few rounds is even so bad that he's gone backwards in the sprint as well, where you would figure that the tire is not such a big issue. So there's, there's something about what he's doing and the way he rides, but I'm not being critical. It's, it's just, you watch it happen regularly on a Saturday or Sunday. So would they get rid of Jack? Miller? I, I can't see it. I can't see that particular. I can't either. Scenario playing out. Cause I'm pretty sure he would have a, a pretty solid, contract having come across from Ducati but I could see him sliding down to the gas gas team yeah I, I mean they've got themselves in a terrible conundrum now KTM they really really have because it's not even as if well they keep publicly saying that they're standing behind Polos Espargaro because he's kind of their one of their chosen ones although you might say well really I mean on performance alone why is that but he has been with them from you know, from very early on in the project, that that is true, and he obviously has missed half of this season through injury. Which you know, okay, that was just bad luck. It wasn't really his fault. So they want to give him time, and in the meantime, Augusto Fernandez, as we've said many times, has been doing, I think, a really really good job. He's been scoring points regularly, not necessarily big points, although he's been, again, one of these riders who's been getting better as the years gone on. So that would be a tough tough uh, call. So I wrote a note, Jim, which might be with coming up next and this might be behind sort of the Arbolino thing working out the way that it has so will KTM look to cut a deal with Grassini and put one of the KTM contracted riders on that bike on a temporary basis now you could certainly see that happening because they'll open their checkbook to make sure they don't lose one of these riders particularly if it's a Costa so is that a possibility Ducati rules that team are they would you would you let Pedro Acosta get on your bike so that he could go back to KTM and tell you how how good it were? I wouldn't. Well, but, but money well, speaks volumes. Money speaks volumes. I'm not saying it's not inside the realm of possibility. No, I don't think they they, they clearly wouldn't put Acosta on the Ducati, but they might they might try and put Augusto Fernandez on on a Ducati if they could cut that deal, perhaps give him a bit more time to learn, and because they can't risk Acosta going anywhere else. Although at this point you'd say, well, where else is he going to go? But because there aren't really that many seats available, unless something like a you know John Mir gets turfed out of HRC and HRC make a play for Acosta, that would make a lot of sense. So there's still a lot of lot of chips to fall. But I mean, a lot of this was predicated on the fact that Morbidelli, just prior to the Silverstone round, announced that he was leaving Yamaha. That was then very quickly followed by Rins saying, I'm, that's where I'm going. So the LCR seat became vacant. So yeah, this is all kind of tumbled into place, but there's still a lot, lot to play. And we were talking about the Pramac or the Mooney seat, who is going to be there. Well, as you've written in the notes there, Jim, much of this now revolves around what Marco Bezzecchi decides to do. And certainly over the Austria weekend, several times they said that Valentino, who was in Austria that last weekend. Conveniently. 
was putting a lot of pressure on Bezeki to stay put in the VR46 team. So I think that's possibly why it's taking this long for an announcement to be made, because I think he obviously has a sort of a divided loyalty now. Does he stay in Valentino's team, but on a year-old bike? Okay, next year it would be a 2023 bike, but... Or does he jump up to Pramat, which will be a full works 2024 bike next year? So that's the, yeah, that's the decision he's wrestling with at the moment. I don't know. We'll know that, more later. But this is this silly season is going to be a long silly season. That will I don't determine. Think it gets figured out for a long time. That will determine where Morbidelli lands. So because clearly, yes. well, although there's still some talk about Morbidelli heading over to the World Superbike, I personally don't think that's going to happen because again like Zaka he's very much sees himself as a front-running MotoGP pilot so and he is part of the VR46 camp so it's obvious that they will try and find him a spot so that's the bit of news that we're waiting to hear yeah we don't know what's going to happen until Bezeki makes up his mind then we're going to put the rest of the pieces of this puzzle together the yeah. the weird part is the 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 square peg in a round hole is Acosta and where does that get beat into by a KTM? That's the outlier. Who yeah. somebody's not going to be happy. And I do. If I'm KTM, I'm going to piss off Miller, or I'm going to piss off um, Augusta Fernandez. Yeah, I'm not going to piss anybody else off. I'm surely not pissing Acosta off. No way. No, There's no, no way. No, you you have you have found that golden boy that can take you to that higher level and i mean they've got bender re-signed i think they think bender mentors acosta for a year and then acosta just takes off yeah it's very well, I possible mean, bender's re-signed up to is it 27 or the end of 26 i, I thought it was now, 26 yeah my, I, I think it's a two-year two two extension years. on what he had which was to the end of next season so yeah um yeah there's uh lots of stuff to play and the other the other one which i thought was made me smile and i don't know if it was a, a statement based on fact or just being a little bit cheeky but Takanakagami said he was looking forward to having Zarko as his teammate next year so well Agura's not going anywhere Agura's staying in Moto2 so that is means... that official though that Agura stayed in Moto2 because we I thought he'd be I, up I haven't seen anything that's officially that he's there but I don't see him moving I mean this year has been somewhat of a write-off because of that wrist injury that he sustained in the preseason. So it might well be that he wants another season in Moto too, but because he's only just starting to come back to his form that we would have expected all year. So that perhaps makes sense. But so maybe Nakagami will retain that seat for another year. I think he does. Oh, enough of riders and where they're going. Let's talk about other things like, oh, I don't know, track limits, because we seem to talk about that all the time. <laughs> uh, saw this from the race that truck limits may be a thing of the past because Hareth has put in, now help me with this one, Rich, it's the candy bar. Is it Tuberlone? Uh, Toblerone. Toblerone. Yes. Sorry, we don't have that kind of candy here in the U.S., people. Oh, it's the um, best. <laughs> but it looks like a bunch of, to me, it looks like alligator teeth or yeah. shark's teeth. Serrated sort of uh, thing, yeah. Yeah, to where they, they're on an angle, so... If you were to come out of the corner and you go onto this area of rumble strip, they're very low. But as you go farther out, they become much more aggressive in height and in depth 
to which I'm wondering, wow, wouldn't that just really destroy a motorcycle? But if it keeps guys out of, of avoiding track limits, then yeah, that could be a thing to do. But we do know that it costs Hareth 150,000 euros to put these in. And it wasn't at every corner. It was there's like three corners that don't have it. But they are 100% legal. They are built to a standard that is in the FIM technical regulations for track homologation. Oh, that's a tough one. I can't no, not even go there. So, yeah, that's the that's the thing. Is like they're legal, and the FIM says they're legal. Does it fix this track limit problem? Track limits problem that we're dealing with. I don't know. Certainly, certainly hope so. I hope so too, because I'm tired of hearing about it. And you know. It's like yeah. we were in Pittsburgh for the Motor America race, and I have some friends with me who, you know, they listen to the podcast. And we were sitting around, I think it might have been Thursday night. And they say, Man, why are you so why are you so on about Freddie Spencer? I thought he was like your motorcycling hero. I said, Yeah, he is my motorcycling hero. I said, Well, you rip him apart for being a for 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 you know saying that people are a millimeter or two outside of track limits. I'm like, yeah, I do. And they're like, well, did you see every piece of video that they see? I'm like, no. Do you know everything that's going on inside of that room? No. So aren't there like three people in that room you told me at one point? Yeah. Do you think maybe Freddie's against it and the other two are for it? I'm like, no, <laughs> you, guys might, you guys might be right about that one. So yeah, I need to be not less harsh on Freddie, I guess. Well, the, oh, well. Uh, in defense of your of you and and again this is something that you read quite a lot from some of the from some of the journalists but they would do themselves a whole heap of good if they were to actually make their decisions more plain in terms of the reasoning behind them but a lot of the time there's no interaction or, or just you know not justification that's the wrong word but um rationale let's say for a, a decision that has been made which on our side of the screen looks a bit strange so maybe that i think perhaps that culture is changing a little bit in terms of engagement with you know the riders and the journalists and ultimately the fans as to why certain decisions are made but yeah cutting back to the tabler end curbs as we'll now call them that is yes i'll have to learn um, to say that word <laughs> yeah if it stops people straying out there then okay job done but as you say jim they are pretty fierce looking pieces of i don't know concrete or composite something or other I guess, in terms of what they're made of. And they don't look very friendly, A, to bodies that might be sliding over them, and certainly to bikes. So they're quite they're quite high ridges, aren't they? So yes, they are. The concern would be, does it kind of launch equipment or people? And then what does it launch them into? Because we know the, the other conundrum is if it's gravel, well, that isn't always good because you can dig in and that's when limbs get broken and stuff and bikes can sort of start to cartwheel. But equally, if it's tarmac, then you're just sliding and nothing's really abating the speed. So there's no sort of really perfect solution to any of this. But if it stops all these in-race penalties and stuff, then I think that would be pretty much for the betterment of everybody. Yeah. My wonderment is, are the car guys going to be upset by that? Because you have a lot of races that are shared, sorry, race tracks that are shared by Formula One and MotoGP. If they did that at Coda, are are all the guys that race cars at Coda going to hate that? It, same thing if they did it at um silverstone right mm. british grand prix is there for formula one because i'm like man if you go over that with a formula one car you are going to destroy the bottom of that car well we're going to find out pretty soon because i'm 
fairly certain in that article it said that they've installed or they are installing these things in Qatar. So and Formula One is going back there uh, later this season. Uh, whether that's before or after MotoGP hit town, I'm not sure because that's in the middle of November. Uh, is it or early part of November? So we will find an answer to that question. But yeah, you can't envisage that a Formula One car sort of dropping a pair of wheels over those things is going to do the underside of that of a vehicle much good. But anyway, I don't really care about Formula One cars. I'm more interested in motorbikes than motorbikes. Oh, I am too. But... I am too. I. It's just, it's going to be interesting because I think trying to find a solution that works for both series, because you're not going to make money at a racetrack by doing just motorcycles. And you're not going to do survive just doing cars. You mm. have to have a, a, a track that can accommodate two-wheel and four-wheel and be safe for both of them or as safe as you can make it. And if I look at that and I look at those curves and I got, even if it was just a GT3 car, I'd be like, mm, uh-uh. mm. I mean, if you had a track day Porsche, would you want to go around the thing with those curves? I wouldn't. No. Cause I'm either going to destroy a wheel or damage something on my Porsche. Not why, didn't, really gonna do that. why didn't somebody pattern a raisable and lowerable curb on a track? Yeah, I it's that's I I mean, how do you I think that's going to be difficult. But I mean, one of the things I thought that you could go back to, but I've also talked myself out of it was if you took you can see it in Austria, some places there's there's it's like the grass creep. It's like herringbone pads that have grass growing through them. Yeah. Well, if you have that, there's going to be less grip there because grass is growing through it. So is it enough to deter you? as you can't go fast on it but if you ran there all weekend long you would have rubber build up to where you would be so it doesn't really solve that problem but does it give you enough of an indication that you can't be out there so you learn to not ride out there i don't yeah. know it's a cur- it's a curious conundrum and believe it or not i actually listened to a formula one podcast where they're talking about the same thing like they're what could you put they're talking about could you put something in that deters a formula one car but yet could be removed for MotoGP, which is kind of fascinating that they're talking about as well as us. I get the whole thing about, you know, a track has its limits. It's often it's a white line, let's say. And I understand that. And I also understand that in some, I would argue, probably reasonably rare cases, you might go off the track on a certain corner and it is a quicker way to get around the corner. I, I, I accept that. But for the most part, I think the minute you're off onto the, the current green with the sensors in it, you're sort of going off the track. So A, you're going to pick stuff up on your tyres in all likelihood, and you're going, you're travelling further. So I'm not quite sure if if the sport hasn't just made a bit of a rod for its own back on this one, enforcing rules that aren't that important. Because uh, the whole thing about, uh, some riders even say, just bring back grass. And then, you know, you're definitely going to slow down. You're definitely going to, you know, r- ruin your tyres for half a lap. So that is the penalty right there. But then the counter argument is, well, if it's wet, then it's dangerous because you're more likely to crash, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no perfect solution. But I would have just thought, I don't really see the issue with the track limits thing, to be honest, unless you are, unless it's a corner where you're quite obviously gaining an advantage. But if you're traveling an extra 20 meters, then surely that negates part of the advantage that you're gaining. I don't know. If you can, I, carry, I if know. You can carry enough momentum through there to, to carry a few more Ks out of the corner, you're going to carry a few more Ks at the end of the straightaway that you're going to. So... Yeah, even though if you're going farther, I mean, but you got to have enough to make up for that. Uh, who knows? Wait, we're not going to solve track limits. No, we're rambling. anytime soon. So, yeah. let us just go to what we really here for, and that's talking 
about what happened in MotoGP. So let's go back to the British GP. British summer, it was typical British summer. Um, I saw Beautiful people weather. sitting. Yeah, they saw people there <laughs> on Saturday, literally with snorkels and scuba goggles. And yeah, it was yeah, looked yeah. like it was pure you misery. Some pure form misery. of aqualung. Yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, and cold. Uh, it really was really cold. cold. It was very very cold. That's for sure. But they did race regardless. Uh, there. Uh, if we look at the, let's just start with Moto Three race, Rich. Here, yes. uh, quickly, uh, the top six from qualifying. It was Masia, Og, Scott Ogden, Holgardo, Rossi, Kelso, and Artigas. This was in a very wet qualifying that happened. So the Brits came to the fore, uh, stiff upper lip, and all that good stuff. But then it becomes race day. Now we only had damp patches at the Moto Three race early in the morning. But poor Scott Ogden, middle of the front row. He stalls the bike, Rich. I got, I was gutted. I was gutted for the poor kid. Um, I don't know if it was something that just happened to the bike or if he did something wrong, but they were able to get it off. Hold that uh, thought, Jim, because okay. obviously we had Scott on the show in the off-season. So I've got the ability to sort of message Scott a little bit now. So And he was quite open and honest. I sort of wrote to him the following day just to say, look, I'm really bummed for you, mate. Sorry that that happened. Do you know what happened? And very interestingly, he said, well, he said the team, I don't think I'm throwing him under the bus on this. I think this is a reasonable thing to report back. The team or Honda more likely wouldn't let him see the data, but that he had been told by the team that he let the clutch out too quickly because he did move off the line and then the bike cut. But as to precisely why it did, he hasn't been allowed to see or they aren't able to see the data. Now, read into that what you will in terms of what a manufacturer might want the team to know because i don't think those are current this year bikes either i think they're probably year old bikes those ones so i don't know because he's like way down on top speed scott which is a problem he is a, one of the taller riders again that's definitely definitely the case but so i think there's probably a little bit more to it than met the eye he certainly didn't just stall it on the line because he did move forward and then it kind of stopped hmm interesting hmm so Bit of inside information there. There we go. A little well, inside well, info for well, you. Well, okay. He said, well, they told me I let the clutch out too quick, but still waiting to find out. So, you know, mm, a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we never really get to find out about, you know? Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot in there that, yeah, there's a lot. you can, I don't know. Anyway. Hmm. Can, I, can I just also say, Scott, oh, yeah. being British and very pragmatic, did go on in this message uh, back and forth that I had with him. And I'll quote this directly. He said, to be honest, if I started second, I was in, he got off the line in second properly. I think it would have been difficult to hold position in the group, just lacking straight line speed compared to some others. So that's kind of, I think his view would probably have been he might have dropped out of the top 10 anyway. So just realistic appraisal of where that team are at. Yeah. I, again, it was, to me, it was just, I was just gutted for the kid just because he put so much effort into qualifying to be on that front row. I didn't expect Scott to like finish on the podium or anything like that unless a torrential yeah. downpour had happened at some point during during the race then i would well sure right because you know, we say you know rain is a great equalizer because you just can't put the power to the ground yeah either way the, the, the key thing just to finish off on the scott Ogden thing is that what he did on the saturday really showed what he's capable of because the conditions being as they were it negated that any shortcomings in the bike and it's not a criticism of the team but if if it is a, a a year old bike let's say then it's going to be a bit behind some of the others out there so the, the rain you know the weather they all say is a massive leveler doesn't it and it allows talent 
that would otherwise be a bit hidden away to rise to the top. So even though it was a very disappointing outcome on Sunday, he still did himself a world of good in terms of that performance on the Saturday and will have, I'm sure will have got a few teams' attention or at least reminded people that he is as good, you know, as that. Hey, Leopard, so. you need somebody to ride your other bike. Well, the, the Massieu's not going to be there, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dorna, as again, Dorna really pushing to cover at least a few Brits in the different classes, ultimately, uh, to satisfy, you know, a, a large UK audience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a good attendance at Silverstone. I did. Yeah, think. it was one hundred ten thousand over the on uh, th- that was the three day total, I think, or was that the Sunday total? I, f- I forget now. It was about ten to fifteen thousand more on the Sunday than it was last year when I went. And if you remember, I commented that it was. I mean, it's e- it's easy for Silverstone to look empty because it is vast, absolutely vast that place. Um, and as I said, I thought the ticket price was stupendously good, really. 110 quid for uh, for three days. I mean, that's that's some sort of good value, really. But clearly the weather, a lot of the people that would have opened the curtains on, you know, the Friday morning thinking, do we go for the weekend? Or had looked at the forecast a week ahead and thought, do we go for the weekend? Probably the forecast did put people off. So that is always a problem in, in Great Britain, unfortunately. Anyway, the race. Uh... So the usual suspects now become out, come to the fore. Anchu, Masia, Halgardo, Sasaki, Onortolo, and Rossi are all in this lead group. It's the normal guys that are up front, but there became a new player who came from dead last on the grid to the front within, oh, I don't know, four or five laps. His name, David Alonzo, on the gas gas meeting. The Colombian kid shows up, and from there, this thing became a battle royale. If you want to show your friends why you watch moto three go back to this race and put that race on because it was a lot of times six bikes wide going in silverstone's a wide circuit it's so it appeals to that it was six bikes wide there was drafting there was passes into maggots and beckets that you just didn't see anybody else trying to do or make uh it was up and down um, the Dutchman Vire was doing absolutely amazing to hang on to where he was. He had a great race inside of all that. I, there was actually 19 riders in the lead group. Yeah, pretty much all race. Yeah, and that was the whole race. I, but if you made a mistake, you paid for it massively by going down seven or eight positions in the group. Uh, people went back and forth. I literally have in my notes that this that every corner had is a three, four, five wide, and it was insane. With somewhere around like seven or eight laps left in the race, it was a brilliant race by everybody. I mean, even Fanati had a lead, and he rode around the outside of cops and maggots into Chapel yeah. to do it. Now we know Fanati rides on a different line than anybody else, but still, around that, yeah, absolutely incredible riding going on there. We had we had track limits warnings because Haldegardo got those. I mean, we threw everything at it that we could get. It's Sasaki was leading towards the very end of it. Uh, Vire had a massive moment at Mackets. I don't know how the kid stayed on. <laughs> yeah, that was, was crazy. Like, whoa, you should have been going to the moon. You should have looked like one of the World War II aircraft taking off there, sir. But somehow <laughs> you held on to it. I don't know how you did, which was crazy. Uh, it was insane. It finally got down to the end. Um, it was great racing to the end because now 
we must remember that they decided to move back to the Formula One paddock, which means that you have the Abbey chicane at the end of the lap, which gives you affords you a great place to overtake in the run back to the line, as opposed to Woodcott, the whole big Woodcott complex there, which is sort of one line as it unwinds itself and you get on the gas. So uh, Anchu made a move, I think, at the end, and uh, so did Alonso. Uh, it was absolutely crazy, but Alonso would get his very first win on a Moto3 bike. He did it from the last row of the grid. I don't remember if he was truly last, but he was the last last row of the grid. He beat Sasaki, Holgado, Ortola, Munoz, and Salvador to the victory. A stunning ride by the kid. And there is a new face in town. It was what the first Colombian to win a MotoGP race, I think, or at least a long time ago, if there was one. I don't remember. Colombian in the in the paddock would have been Yoni Hernandez, I would guess. I don't know if there's. I been think any, that's right. Maybe, but obviously he wasn't. You know, I, I don't remember him winning anything particularly. I mean, my notes, Jim, just say epic race, epic last, epic last lap. I mean, just Silverstone. Yes, you can criticise some things about Silverstone. Hopefully people listened to the chat I did with Stuart Pringle a few weeks back and, you know, he was defending his his venue very staunchly, as you would quite right expect. And most of what he said, I totally agreed with. There are one or two things about Silverstone that I'm not so comfy with, it's true. But, you know, you always get, pretty much always get good race in there. And we'll compare and contrast this with, the Austrian round, which for me was mostly a pretty turgid weekend of, of action, whereas all three races at Silverstone were brilliant, but the Moto3 race was just something else. I mean, it really was. All four. Four, four races. Eight. Thank you. Sorry, I still haven't got used to it. <laughs> um, yeah, so Alonso, 27 places he made up, and in the run over the line on the last lap, 1.572 seconds covered the top 15. I mean, it's just... Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And a shout out to Diego Moreira for his Senna tribute crash helmet as well. I made oh, yes. a note of that in my notes as well, because that was cool. That was very cool. So all in all, a very cool Moto3 race. Um, show your friends. If, if your friends aren't watching Moto3, have them watch that race, and then they're going to understand why you, you watch Moto3, because absolutely just phenomenal racing there. Uh, let us move to Moto2. So in Moto2, on the front row, Acosta, Aldiger, and Van de Gorberg. That was a 17, an 18, and a 19-year-old. If you don't think the changing of the guard is coming, just look at that front row and those kids. Their combined age is like 54, 55. They're just barely older than us, Rich. Yeah. And that they're going fast. So they're and they're good. Uh, so that was your front row. Then it was Arbelino Lopez and Canet on that second row. Uh, the, it's suffice to say that poor Scott Dixon did have a moment in qualifying uh, on the wet track. He threw it away. Sorry, go ahead. You just said Scott Dixon. He's an IndyCar oh, driver. Good grief. Jake Dixon. <laughs> just for sorry. Just, just just to be. Uh, oh, I got Indy, I got Indy on the brain. I got tickets to go to Indianapolis, folks, for a car race. <laughs> so I've got Indianapolis on the brain. I'm sorry. Sorry, my apologies to to uh, Jake. Yeah, but Jake had trouble with qualifying. I threw it away uh, there at the last turn, which was like eighteen. Um, very sad that he, but he was he was just going for it, 
he was riding the momentum from the Aston win. Uh, home crowd, he was pumped up. Those things are actually going to happen. It's not that big of a deal. But uh, when we get into the, 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 the actual Moto2 race, it was chaos in the back at Village. Uh, Skinner was down. Lopez, Aldiger, uh, and Acosta were out front. But there was some carnage that happened as we went through the first turn there. Uh, it's just that funnel effect, right? Everybody was going fast into a small area that requires a lot of braking. Since mm. the re redo of Silverstone, that's like the tightest. I think they take that in first gear. Motor I would GP think, bikes and I would think so, yeah. So they have to slow down a whole way. Uh, it, t- it turns out the, that it was uh, Skinner had some help and he bumped into Dixon and they both go down and uh, Bender, Darren Bender was in there and he got a long lap penalty for his effects in that. And, you know, let's say that there were some unsavory comments about Darren by Jake at the time. And just because we're going to do Austria, we'll just go forward a little bit. At the press conference in in Austria, Jake really did do a phenomenal job to come back and walk his statements back. I was hot under the collar. I was bothered by it and I let it go. And that's not really true. Um, That's, you know, what do they, I forget what they actually there's a there's a one for that's something like a, a talent is temporary but class is forever and you know that was a very class act move because they had they didn't ask Jake at all about that incident he simply stopped the interview after the first question and said I'm going to go say this so you know right proper bloke as you would say I think right yeah I mean he was bang out of order with what he said you know in in the heat of the moment but then uh, it was not. Probably you could maybe blame the broadcaster, whoever it was. It would probably have been TNT, I guess, as the host uh, race. But sticking a microphone under his nose right at the moment when that's just happened, you know, that's he's bound to be sort of pumped full of adrenaline and likely to say something potentially out of turn. And I mean, say what you like about Darren Binder and he's got a reputation, but I mean, he was utterly blameless in that because, I mean, Jake was going around the outside of him, out of his line of sight. So he had a little bump, a little wobble in the corner. First end of the first lap, if you recall. And yeah, just tagged Dixon and down he went. Very, very unfortunate. But really, Jake did himself no favours by starting, what, 15th or 16th on the grid because of crashing and qualifying in the wet. So you can understand all of those things. But yeah, a little bit unfortunate, but very much made up for, as you say, Jim, by what he did voluntarily in the next round. So we'll come to that. Yep. Uh, Kenneth got out front. Uh, He actually started to open up a little bit of a gap uh, but basically, Aldiger came along for the ride, and Aldiger would wind up catching like Acosta, and he would grab Acosta would hang on to him. They would go find Kinnett, and they would start running, running away with uh, at the front. It was a three rider race basically there uh, for for all that. Basically, it was Aldiger, Kinnett, and Alcoba. Uh, now Roberts, I had hope for Roberts. He was looking uh, Joe Roberts was looking the best that he's looked in quite some time on the Moto T bike. Hopefully he was going to catch on for a podium. That unfortunately did not happen. But we did wind up with it with the fact that uh, Kenneth had to drop a place because he had gained an advantage in a turn. So instead of giving a long lap, we get the whole you got to give back a place. So he did, um, and that was well. I think that was what for the crash at turn one and passing under the yellow. I think is where the advantage was gained in that regard um something to that effect i know if something goes on at that point in it 
but it basically Aldegar winds up running away. I mean, that fast flowy Silverstone nature suits that Bosca Cora. Yeah. Kinnett ran on to second. Acosta was had tired, had tires. He couldn't hang on to it anymore. Kinnett would then get back by him after having dropped the position. Roberts would stay in fourth. Then um, Gonzalez and Balthus figure it out at the end. That that is really where it goes. That race was it was a good race. Um, it was intriguing, I think, because the fight between Kinnett and Acosta was really good. But once Aldegar got to the front, Aldegar was definitely on a different level. Yeah, uh, he was definitely tuned in, and he was riding really well. It was a, it, it was a good race. I mean, Moto Two is tradition, and don't forget, Moto Two was the last race of the day because that they is was, true. They always shake the order up at Silverstone. Yeah, um, because of TV time, right? Because of trying to keep everything at like two o'clock. European yeah. time or something like that. As, as a fringe benefit, it probably helps with traffic management a bit as well because some people will leave after the MotoGP race. But anyway, I mean, that's by the by. But it, so it wasn't a classic race, it's true, but it was a very good one because, as you say, Canet was out front early on and then Adica sort of wore him down, got out front. And Aldegra actually did his fastest lap on the penultimate lap, I think, because you could see the team sort of uh, wishing he would slow down a little bit, you know, given that it was... His first racing was coming up, and I didn't want him to check it away. But no, it was a good sort of tactical race that one. Yeah, yep. If you like the strategy, it was it was more like could Acosta hold anybody off? His tires were gone, and you're just like, eh, is the kid going to push it? Is he going to take the points? Where's he going to go? Because Arbelina was well down the list. He was he did pull a little bit of a rabbit out of his hat to lessen the damage. But um, Arbelina has not had a good run of form in the last couple of races, where Acosta has been on the podium now cost isn't setting the world on fire by winning races but you got to be consistent to win a championship i think we learned that one from augusto fernandez <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so um was it silverstone where acosta had hurt his ankle in a training crash as well because one of yeah he didn't he get to race to silverstone his... last year because he had broken his femur Last year, but uh, this like, year he was also nursing an injury because he took his boot uh, off on the slowdown. That's right, lap, didn't he did. He? Yes. Was that Silverstone? I think it was. I think it was, yes. He's, they, I forget where he did that too, but yeah, he was nursing an ankle injury of some kind. So, you know, given bearing and that all in mind, you know, to finish third was, you know, yeah, you, you grit your teeth on those days, don't you, I suppose, as a rider and get back the points. So, yeah, Narbellino just for whatever reason hasn't been able to really kind of take advantage of any of that. Loses, it kind of loses the plot, sort of like, Lowe's always does on that bike. There's just something about the setup that they don't have for some reason. And it just depends on that. I don't think that the Mark VDS bikes work in a cooler environment. Because if you look at it, they go to the races where it's relatively hot. They are fantastic. You go to where they're cooler, they're not so good. But eh, who knows? Uh, interesting list. You know, that's an observation of me. I, you know, not saying the team's not doing their best to make the bike as good as they can but either way uh the sprint on saturday for moto gp i will not call it a race it's a sprint no it's a sprint race whatever it's a, yeah, cool it is sprint. what it is so we have it we was declared a wet race uh that's for sure so you could ride swap out at any time uh for that and and change your bike if whenever you wanted to but i didn't think it was going to dry out at least not in the i think you know we're going like 10 or 11 laps i think yeah, I think, I think everybody was, was on laps. medium wets, weren't they, to sort yep. of have a slightly more durable wet weather tire because it was obviously going to dry out to some extent. It was just how much is it going to dry? Correct. Yeah, were we going to find any dry patches or anything like that? Uh, so from the qualifying, Bezeki, Miller, and Alex Marquez are your front row, having 
going through all of the qualifying. Second row is Benyaya, uh, Fernandez, and Marini. So there's your top six as it starts out. We get into the sprint. Miller jumps out in front. The KTM always seems to have like a very good whole shot action. Again, I think they're using some kind of hydraulics to slip the clutch and find a bite point uh, to get that. Uh, Pecco is 12th. I mean, he winds up going all the way down. He was bumped out wide by Zarco in there because uh, his Miller and Martin are out front. Basically, those guys were out front, but all of a sudden, here comes Alex Marquez. Like, roughly halfway through the race, Alex Marquez finds form, rode to the front, and then rode away, which was absolutely impressive to watch Alex win like he did. He just rode away. The middle section there, once Alex Marquez is gone, is just Bezecchi and Vinales there. But what you find out is that here comes Zarco. Zarco, always with the late race charge, especially in rain races, like it takes him three or four laps to bed the tire in or to figure out where the grip level is and where the water puddles are, or whatever it is that Zarco has to do in these first four laps. He suddenly just turns it on at the end. Zarco came rolling through it. You're like, ooh, could he even get to Alex Marquez? No, he really, he he couldn't. You wanted him to. He did do his best to get up there. He got to within a couple of seconds or something. But literally, Zarco took, took like six seconds out of people, you know, which was just, you know, he was going like from 65 miles an hour they're losing like 65 miles an hour in six seconds off the brembo breaks that was a cool graphic that they showed there during the wet but i didn't think he could actually get there but zarko actually went by miller at like stowe which is a really you know fast turn to try that in and he did but it wasn't enough alex marquez would win his first sprint race Vizeki would ride home to second vinyala's a good race on the Aprilia. The Aprilia looked good in both the wet and the dry that had been going on. Alicia Sparger would even wind up being in the top six because uh, out of the second uh, three were Zarco, Alicia, and Martin. So you had the two Aprilias there looked looked good. I mean, Alicia had been saying he had pace, but he was tempered by the rain, and so did Vinales seemingly have pace. I mean, before it rained. Those guys were fast, so kind of backed it up. They were both ways there. But it was an interesting sprint. Just good to see Alex win one. Um, you know, remains to be seen if he wins an actual MotoGP race or where he where his career is going to go from here. But he seems to now, given the troubles his brother is having, he's sort of come out of the shadow of his brother and proving that he actually is a pretty damn good rider in my mind. Yeah, on a very good bike, it must be said. True. But yes, uh, you know he's won a race, so and or, or a sprint. Let's call it a race. And you know, don't give those away, do they? So, fair play to him. Rather extraordinary. The only couple of things I got to add to it, really, Jim, is given that it was sketchy-ish conditions, not a single faller in the sprint, which was interesting. And the only other note I made was a bit of a horror show for the Japanese factories. I mean, they were just nowhere. It was just Euro European bikes everywhere you could see, really. So, um, but yes, Aprilia, having really struggled in the sketchy conditions in Argentina, they had a brilliant Friday, I think it was in Argentina earlier in the season when it was dry and warm. 
Saturday or Sunday, you're both sort of turned up pretty cold and damp and the form of the Aprilia just vanished. So it was good at Silverstone to see that the that the conditions did not result in the same thing on the Saturday, at least, with Vinales, who's a bit of a Silverstone specialist, it must be said. But and, and, but Aspargaro as well, finishing, what do you say, was sixth in the end, or top six? Yeah. Who? Uh, Aleish Aspargaro. Yeah, Aleish was, uh, he was, he was fifth. Fifth, okay. Yeah, so Vinales, was, Vinales had the sprint podium, and then then Zarco interrupted it because he got Aleish at the very end because he's he was Zarco was just the fastest man on track right right at the end. Yeah. So yeah, but hopeful signs though for Aprilia in terms of being able to have a wider operating window. Uh, bright sunshine greeted the MotoGP race on the Sunday, but the question was how long was it going to last? There was <laughs> ominous <laughs> dark clouds were looming every which way that was there. Um, we started again. Miller got a whole shot. This is kind of becoming the norm here. Qualify well, be on the front row, get a whole shot. Martin was like way wide. He had a touch with with Bender, and that wound up getting into where you had a lot of crash damage. Wings got broken. Things were all wiggly woggly. And I wrote in my notes, it's like we are starting to see these wings become damaged by riders trying to get position on the first couple of laps because we've seen now that we don't. We are not able to pass due to the dirty air, due to the effective arrow, and these wings are now starting to become broken. And my question to you is, Rich, when are we going to see somebody suffer a cut tire like we see in Formula 1? I'm scared of the wings coming off and cutting a tire because if you're doing – I forget what they had on the bikes at the end of the hangar straight. It was like – I want to say close to like 225, maybe 230. It was it was well over 200 miles an hour. I know yeah, that. Yeah, they are well over that, yeah. They're well yeah. over that. I do not want to see a tire come undone because it has a carbon fiber shrapnel that it had to ride through you on the first lap when people bang wings because I do not want to see another Barry Sheen Daytona incident. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. Barry survived and went on to win world championships and stuff and races, but I mean, we do not need that. And I'm really, really scared about that. If you're going to get rid of the aerodynamics, you're going to have to do it on this. You're going to have to say, look, you don't have the four wheels. You can't have a tire that's going to be puncturable by these carbon shards. So if, and I don't think Michelin or Pirelli or whoever are going to be able to build a tire to withstand being cut by these things, right? So in my mind, if we want to get rid of the wings, then we're gonna have to do it from a safety grounds, and if I and it, I don't think it will happen until you get one bike that has a truly definitive tire that deflates slash explodes slash whatever mm. and causes a rider to crash because they ran over the debris. Then you're gonna see something done. Until then, there's you know it's not gonna happen. Certainly, your point about you know all these sort of extremities or, or appendages that have kind of sprouted over the years. Was it, I'm just trying to think, it was Alicia Spargo, the Aston run, wasn't it, where he rode pretty much the entire one of the races with the one of the wings kind of flapping in the wind. I mean, I was very surprised he didn't get the, what they call the meatball flag, you know, the orange circle on the black background, to come in and get that sort of properly ripped off because i mean again that was that's quite a big wing on the aprilia isn't it well they all are these days but certainly on the aprilia it's, it's really very big and if that had kind of detached and just flown through the air and hit somebody i mean that doesn't really bear 
thinking about but it is a known fact as you say jim i mean carbon fiber is extraordinarily strong in the, in the direction that it's designed to be operating in but in put it in a different situation and it crumbles and, and flakes and it's very very sharp so as you say in formula one okay there's a lot more carbon fiber and the cars are big four tires to touch stuff so i suppose the chances of it happening on a, on a bike are lower but it only takes one nasty accident to kind of create the situation where they have to do something about it on safety grounds, but you would hope that it wouldn't get to that stage. But, and as you say, in the MotoGP race at Silverstone, it was good, another very, very good race, but there was quite a bit of bumping and boring going on. I mean, in my notes, I got on lap three, you know, Vignal is really, I think it was Vignal, is really barged Miller out of the way at Cops. Yeah. And again, I think did. there was wing damage as a result of that. And you don't, you don't want shards of carbon fiber lying around on the track, as you say, because it will cut a tire eventually. I mean, just, I mean, we've seen it happen. I mean, what if that wing gets kicked by another rider up by another bike and it hits a rider in the head or in the shoulder or neck? I mean, it's yeah, going to I mean, be yeah. a serious injury, you know. Mm. I, again, I'm, I, I understand the aerodynamics make the bikes go faster. We're talking about the idea that these are prototypes and the idea is to build a motorcycle that is to go as fast as it can go around a racetrack. But I think we have got to add some common sense into this somewhere um we got to find a happy medium in some way i mean whether the wings become smaller or you know whatever it may be i'm just concerned so i'll leave it there uh we we've ranted about that stuff before and there's no yeah go ahead the only thing i want to say jim is and i suppose we'll come to this but uh, interestingly to me silverstone a very fast track some very high speed corners not too many really really heavy braking points so i don't think you can get away from the fact that if you have tracks like silverstone you tend to get good racing irrespective of the fact that there's aerodynamics everywhere they are helping the bikes be more stable in those fast turns cut forward to a stop and go track like the red bull ring and it's pretty boring stuff i mean people really struggling to overtake because it's all about on the brakes all the time and out of corners so I'm sure there's a happy medium here somewhere in terms of track design and aero and stuff like that, unless it, something gets banned on a safety ground. But yeah, I mean, it was a good race at Silverstone. And the, the sprint wasn't the most exciting because it was wet-dry affair. But the Sunday race at Silverstone was really, really good. I mean, we haven't stopped talking about the race yet and what happened at the end. So Yeah. Uh, where were we? Oh, uh, we had we were about three laps into the race and it was starting to get very dark. The question was, was, was it going to rain? But Aleish, from his lowly starting spot, was starting to come. He had got by Alex Mar Marquez. He was sort of the man to watch. He was the guy who was turning the fast laps. And you're wondering what's going to happen because we had our typical Biagi, Bezeki out front. Then Aleish was there as well. Bender was in the mix. So the, these are sort of like the new normal. It's the bees, right? It's Benyai, it's Bezeki, it's Bender. They all <laughs> seem to sort of be at the front now. It's like the killer bees somewhere up front. Um, both the Aprilers were looking really good. And of course, here comes Zarco up as well. Now these guys start to try to change and go back and forth. And it's interesting. Benyai leads for a long time through this middle section of the race, but everything behind him sort of changes in flux and goes around. Alish was looking very strong. He had talked about it, they, that they had pace, even Vinyas denoted the, Silverstone specialist was up at the front too, as well. So it was becoming a pretty fascinating, raining, pretty fascinating race. And we got to about eight laps to go when the rain flags 
up here. It was starting to sprinkle a little bit. Worst thing you can do. It's hard enough to see it on your visor. Is the corner next time I come back to this corner? Is it going to be so wet? I'm not going to be able to stay upright on slicks. Was anybody going to dare take the bike swap? You were allowed to because the white flag at the corners was being waved, indicating that you could change your bike if you wanted to. But well, we were focused on the Aprilia battle that was happening between the two teammates. Alation and Vinales were going back and forth, back and forth. Bender would go by like both the Aprilias in a draft, and he just got sucked along. He would go by. It was really, like I said, it was really good racing. It comes down to it gets to like to be the very end. I mean, we even had Oliveira on the on the satellite Aprilia who shows up at the end of the race that he gets there. Um, and then Bastianini and Marquez renew their friendship in the gravel trap, shall we say? Because <laughs> they uh, you know, again, Marquez pretty much just runs right over Bastianini. Now, admittedly, Bastianini did have a bit of a oops moment, whether it was a bit of too much throttle, a little too much wet whatever and then marquez really in this case did not have anywhere to go but the two of them wound up knocking himself down interesting marquez has not scored a point yet at all on the honda i don't think he's finished a race yet this year on the honda so tough times as we said for the japanese um quattro would crash into marini he would run into marini and crash so again silverstone was a horror show for both of the japanese manufacturers um oliver had got himself to third before just the end of the race but uh, the question is, was Oliveira got caught by Benyaya because he actually was leading a little bit. There was a lace was there in the last between the last uh, few laps. It's an all out war between Benyaya, Aleish, Oliveira and Bender. And Aleish puts on a hell of a move through maggots to take the lead and then runs. I thought for sure the Ducati was going to run him down on hanger straight. It did not. Aleish had enough power to stay out in front. Um, Benyai may have been thinking points. I don't know. I'm not inside of his head. But Aleish would go on to win the race over Benyai, over Bender, over Oliveira, and Vinales and Martin. And again, you have a whole slew of European motorcycles. But this time, it's only two Ducatis, Benyai and uh, Martin. You had one KTM and Bender. But you had um, three Aprilias in Oliveira, Aleish, and Vinales. So it was a really weird turn of events. Did the rain have a little bit to do? Was Benyai just worried about his points lead? Maybe, possibly. Yeah. But of course, as soon as the race ended, the sun, in typical <laughs> British fashion, came back out. I thought it was a great race. It's a great MotoGP race to watch. There was just so much good action. Yeah, and the the that little sprinkle of rain, as you say, I think it spooked a few riders. I mean, the big surprise there actually, one rider that you would have probably have put money on to be spooked a bit by it and to slow down a bit would have been Alicia Spargro, and yet he kind of he reveled in it. Clearly, Oliveira came like a freight train in those conditions as well, because he's just brilliant in those sort of sketchy conditions. But yeah, hats off to Alicia Spargo. I mean, it, it was proper cat and mouse. He was it was all about that last lap, wasn't it? He was just staying close, staying close. Banyard possibly thinking about points a little bit. Because what we didn't mention actually, Jim, was that on what was it, lap fifteen? Possibly aero related, but Bezeki tried to put a move into Stowe on Banyaya and lost the front, didn't he? And went down into the gravel. So with him being Banyai's closest challenger in terms of the points, I'm sure the team would have informed Banyai following lap on his pit board that Bezeki was out. So perhaps, you know, as you say, perhaps he was just playing playing it a little bit cautious when 
Elaish went by on the last lap. But nevertheless, I mean, it was a brilliant ride by Elaish Spargo and very much made up for the disappointment of the year prior, if you remember, when he was absolutely on fire all weekend and then had a mother and father of a high side in the Sunday morning warm-up. I think, I think it was the Sunday morning warm-up. Or was it maybe it was FB3 or something? Um, and he really bashed his ankle and it kind of, he didn't win. Whereas I think everybody thought he would have won the race last year. Obviously there was no sprint last year, but um, to very much made up for the fact that he had that disappointment last year. And the, the Aprilia just, for whatever reason, it just works at certain tracks. And Silverstone is one of the best examples of where the Aprilia is good. So nice for that team, you know, to get a bit of a, get another win under the belt. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I really got nothing else for, from Silverstone. We'll go to the more boring racing. <laughs> we transition from the high speed, high flowing, uh, only one really slow corner that exists at Silverstone to a point and squirt circuit of the Styrian Mountains in Austria for the next round. Uh, we'll start with Moto3 on the Sunday. From qualifying the top six, Colin Vier, who is on fire. I, I, I can't help it. I have to use that line. Nicely done. Thank you. <laughs> I catch. I got that from uh, Matt Bird. Anyway, uh, he was had his first poll. Hogarda was second. Anshu was third. Then it was Masia, Rueda, and Rossi. Rossi showing it gets form and qualifying, but really not able to do much when it hits the races. This race is the race of the weekend. It is the best race of the weekend. They proceeded from that point to go downhill after this one like nobody yes. was nobody was able to keep up with how good that these guys were uh as it started holgardo got out front with his team with uh Anchi behind him they are not teammates i thought that i was going to get barry to say that but no holgardo is in the tech three squad and Anchi is in the actual factory squad vire was then there alonzo who had won in the columbian who had won prior uh moss and rossi the race here was pretty amazing uh you they had a train of seven bikes running around Holgardo leading for much of the race. Now, there was stuff going on in the back that people were trading back and forth in places and swapping some in and out. But you got to remember, Holgardo basically stays out front for about the first two-thirds of this race. Masia has a bike problem. The Honda quit on him, and Sasaki, who had come from the back of the pack, just clips him when the motor dies for whatever reason. Don't know why it, no, it, don't know. it acted like it just turned itself off. Like it was truly an electrical problem that there was just no fire. Great save by Sasaki just to keep going. Now this made the front group have about a one and a half second lead, which was uh, basically just Holgardo and Anchu and uh, Vire. They were the three that had gotten away because of the incident that happened back with, with Sasaki and Masia. But that didn't last for long because the guy who was on the gas was Alonzo. So Alonzo starts to drag Sasaki and Rossi to the front. Vire, eventually about 10 laps in, about halfway in, had gotten he had displaced Holgardo at the front. And those two sort of kept swapping it turn for turn. If Vire would pass him at turn one, Holgardo would go by at the chicane. If he if then Vire would go back by at three, and then it would be four, Holgardo would be back in front. These guys were running really hard at the front and swapping. But when they do that, you know what happens? The train comes up and catches you. So now we put about a seven-rider train together. But it was still being led by Hargarder for most of it. Alonzo finally did get to the lead. He led for a little bit. He had 
And then he threw, promptly threw it away at the chicane. He was riding that bike so hard. He just left it just that fraction late. I mean, we're talking millimeters yep. and left front end went away on him. So that ruined uh, his chance for a, at least a podium podium there. Sasaki would be uh, a second to Orgardo. Ortola now was the man to watch because Ortola was in the second group. He had gotten himself through everything and he was on pace to try to get to the front. He was having, uh, let's see, he was 2.7 seconds behind the front group, but you just was, there was only roughly about six, seven laps to go. He was turning laps that were almost a second quicker than anybody else, but I guess the tires gave up because before he could ever get to the pack, the just he couldn't carry that momentum any farther forward and Ortola was doomed to finish down the pack a little bit the race of the front got great in the last few laps it was Hargada versus Sasaki versus Anchu again they're just going back and forth at each other it's truly a great race but that last lap is just one for the books Hargado goes by Sasaki at one now Sasaki's got it figured out if he leads through seven and eight he wins the race or he thinks he does yes that's his plan <laughs> Sasaki's plan is to be out front. Well, Hargado ruins that by going to the front. So Sasaki then tried to go by at three, which he does. But guess who go by two? Anshu comes with him. So that relegated Sasaki back one more. And, and they pushed a vire out of the way because it was he was come, coming as well. So Sasaki had then become fourth. Then Hargado dove in at, then he, at the very end. Hogardo's in the front, right? Sasaki's now worked his way back to like second. Anchu's third. Vire's behind him. Hogardo throws it in at turn 10 in a last-ditch effort to pass. But when he does that, he forces Sasaki wide. And he also loses his drive. But the man who played it smart was Anchu. Because Anchu was out really wide. If you look his race the whole time, he was always over on the curbs coming into 10. From 9 to 10, he's always on the curbs. He's flirting with track limits. But he was always out there. He senses it. He turns it in and takes the shortest distance. You know, he 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 turns. He takes a late apex to turn it to go to where he could go full throttle faster than anybody. He goes to full throttle and he beats Holgardo by five thousandths of a second, wow. which was amazing. Ooh. I mean, it was so close. Then poor Sasaki was third. Then Vire. Um, Ortola and Rossi was your top six. That last lap, you have to watch people. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Watch it again. I watched it two or three times. It was just Anchu played such a cunning race. I thought it was really a brilliant race by him. He was really starting to show racecraft. I think that's sort of kind of what's been missing a little bit with Anchu. I think we expected Anchu to win a whole lot more races. Now he's physically bigger. Maybe he is a little bit too big for a Moto3 bike. But he knew what was going to happen. He read the tea leaves perfectly yeah. and just had enough. That finish line is one foot farther. Holgardo wins. But it was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant race. Brilliant move by, by Anchu and a well-deserved win at that point. So It was very much shades of the MotoGP race a few years ago, wasn't it? When Oliveira snuck through to win when, who was it that tangled with each other in the last call? Marquez was going after... I'm tempted uh, to say Miller or something, possibly, no, but no. no. Um, Dovey, him and Dovey. Was it? Okay. I think it's that one, but I mean, 
there was many a year that it was Dovey v Marquez in the final turn and yeah. Dovey won a couple that way. And I know um, Oliveira won one that way. So, yeah, but it, it does as much as what we can opine about the track, not being anything like Silverstone, it given the right bikes, you can have a pretty good last lap because that last turn allows you to run different lines and different strategies so it does make for an interesting race. I mean, let's face it. Some of the early MotoGP races there were fantastic. You had to wait for the last lap for the magic to happen. Three wings. Magic yeah. does. There are weak races in between, but, but you know, Moto3 never disappoints. No, I mean, Moto3, disappoint here. as I've said many times, it's pretty regularly the best race of the day. Uh, and it certainly was the best race of the day over the course of this weekend that we're talking about it was but but obviously with a smaller group out front but nonetheless i mean the lead was changing again it was one of those like we always say don't bother making notes because by the time you've written out you've just gone into the lead they're in back in fifth or something so i mean it's just typical moto three but yeah great race all right let's go to uh moto two do you not want to do the championship now that we're kind of caught uh, up? I was going to gonna the... do all the championships right at the end, or well, we can do it now. I don't care. I've got it either way. If we go, let's let's go to the championship. Let's do that. So with the Moto3, with the win here, Holgardo went to 161 points. Sasaki's on 135. So Holgardo has now built his lead back up. It's now a 26-point lead. So he could take a race off and he'd still be leading the championship. Anchu's on 124. Ortola's on 118, I think, or Ortola's championship is pretty much done at this point. Mossy is at 109. That uh, the I think he crashed at Silverstone in the in the race, and then his motor failure here um, left him down. And then well, Morera's on, only on 94 points. I think the championship is between Holgardo and Ma and Sasaki. Although Anchu has that outside looking in thing, and there's no pressure on him, so. Well, other than the fact that it's a bit, I suppose, it's not great for Onchu in the sense that Holgado, they did, they were the ones that did the kind of the bike swap last season, if you remember. So Holgado got dropped out of the IO team and went to Tech 3, and Onchu went in the other direction. It shows you that it takes a mix of people and rider to get the best out of it, right? Absolutely. We've yeah. never, we never saw Onchu reach any of his potential in Tech 3, yet you put him with the IO team, and suddenly his potential has been reached. Helgardo yeah. didn't seem to have any chemistry going with Io, and you put him over at Tech 3 and you let Guy Coulomb talk to him and suddenly, boom, he's at the front and been there the whole time. Yeah. It's it's It shows you just how much of a mental – the rider has to be happy, right? If you're comfortable, you'll go fast. Jeremy Burgess said it the best. If he thinks he needs gold-plated handlebars to go fast, then give him gold-plated handlebars. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of that, It's which is you know really – keen to see you don't see that too much in car racing but you really see this in in motorcycle racing yeah no it's, it's interesting the way that that's swapped isn't it but yeah i would, would agree with your summary there i think on just about still in the running here but kind of needs help uh, yeah a bit of trouble to beset holgado or sasaki i mean probably sasaki he just can't get a win can he at the minute i mean at least he didn't finish second again although i suppose he wishes he would have done from the points point of view but it makes a change for him not to not to finish second, but yeah, he's obviously there's a win coming somewhere in the near future for him. But and he did have his elbows out. In fairness to him, on this last lap, I think I wrote it in my notes. Like, can Sasaki do it? Is he going to be tougher on this last lap this time? Uh, and the whole Gardo, I mean, it was a bit of a desperate dive bomb, really, wasn't it? On yeah. that last corner, 
And you kind of could see that coming. And as you say, Onchu just read it perfectly. Absolutely just thought, right, as soon as that kicks off in front of me, or if it does, I'm in position A. And so he was. Yep. So good, yeah, good stuff. Good on him. Uh, Moto2 race. So if we look at Moto2, uh, from qualifying, Acosta on pole, he had great pace all weekend. Um, after that, it was Ogura uh, Vietti, who sort of magically showed up. I, Where's yeah. he been? I, <laughs> so, Hi, welcome back. I'm Will the real Celestino Vietti please stand up? I, yeah, <laughs> just, the guy who we thought was going to win the championship last year and then vanished yeah. without trace almost. And then suddenly, like you say, it's like, where the hell is this? Suddenly returned or whatever. He obviously, so. had a good, obviously had a good summer holiday. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Dixon then and Chantra and Arbolino and then Arbolino was like, uh, sorry, uh, Viet, mo, the qualifying was Acosta, Agura, Vietti, Dixon, Chantra, and Audiger. Arbolino was seventh. I got it sort of moved around there. Sorry, folks. So Arbolino just off on the back row there. So we knew something was going to come on, uh, with that. And the race started and Acosta shoots off like a rocket ship. He is out front. The race is basically between uh, Vietti, Dixon, Chantra, and Agura. That's the battle. And there's there's back and forth. Lowe's has a crash. Um, he crashes with Bender at, at turn three. Um, but it looks like this time it was Sam ran into or something happened to the bike, and he just clawed at Bender. Yeah. I think he lost the front end. I, I Very weird. Very strange. There was something definitely weird that happened in that one but you know that that happens it's racing and sam put his hands up right away hey my fault bud made sure uh bender was okay well i actually i'm not sure if it wasn't the other way around i got a feeling bender crashed and sam ran into him Hmm. i didn't see from the replay that i was i had privy to i could have been either way i yeah I know Sam was very concerned and went running over as if he was apologising, but I think it was more concern. So, mm. but, but I'm not quite sure about that one. But it was because you didn't, re- as you say, you didn't really get a very clear replay on it. But yeah, I mean, Bender, but Bender's God, just I mean, having a horrid Moto Two season. Yeah, I don't think he's has he finished a race. I mean, seriously, barely. If he, had, yeah, barely. It's just terrible luck, I guess, for everybody, yeah. in, everybody in, in there. Agura goes by Dixon, but then Dixon would go back by. Arenas falls down at turn three. The front just caved in. Uh, Dixon and Agura have a really good battle. They go back and forth, different turns, different times, uh, really definitely there. But Acosta, by the way, is just creeping along. He's out front. Don't don't worry about him. He's he's out there. Uh, Joe Roberts would crash. Uh, turn three, Arenas would crash for a second time at turn six. He, again, a bad day at thing. Kennett down at turn nine. Well, when isn't when isn't Kennett on the ground? I think um, not. It's I, you know, man, you know, buddy, you talk about not being considered for a MotoGP ride. Well, maybe if you stayed on the bike. Now, if you have a bad bike and you're pushing it and you crash, I get that whole thing. But I don't know what's going on with Kinet. But then again, I don't know what's going on with Vietti either. Right. Yeah. Because Vietti suddenly shows back up. And Vietti, who was nowhere really in the beginning of all this, just sort of like took a light switch and just went click on. And he just started moving through like he had he was going almost a second faster than acosta acosta had slowed down to like the 142s or high 141s where vietti was like at the bottom end of the 141s and he was moving so he winds up riding through dixon he rides through agura he goes past chantra he goes all the way to second you're like well can he catch acosta like 
is this even possible? Like, I don't know, but his pace says that he can. He had eight laps to go, and I wrote, can he catch Acosta? Well, you know, Arbelino was running back and forth with Slatch. Isaiah C was getting comfortable with his new teammate. You know, they were learning each other's things. <laughs> yeah. And then the dreaded track limits warning shows up. Acosta's got a track limits warning. Like, oh, good grief. Here comes Vietti, and you have to be inch perfect now for the final five laps. Otherwise, you're going to be told to go take the long route, the long lap of inconvenience here, and you're going to lose this race. I really thought that Vietti was not going to get to Acosta. I thought Acosta had something left in the tank. I really did. He was out front. I was proven to be wrong because Vietti went by Acosta at turn four and uh, mm, goes on and wins the race. Yes, I said Vietti won the race. I just to clarify for you all, yeah. I was shocked, completely shocked at where that had come from. I think Vietti was completely overwhelmed emotionally that he had gotten himself back to not only just a podium, but had gotten himself back on top of the box. Acosta, I think, had some tire issues. I think he burned them up or just wrong compound or it just didn't work for him for the length of the race. Take your pick. Anyway, if you want to go, but he did manage to, to continue on to get to second. Agur would finish on the box. Dixon just off of the box. Then Chantra and then Arbelino saving it to Kim on six, which is there. But, you know, it goes without saying you got to first to finish first. First, you must finish. Acosta is doing the consistency thing now, right? He's been on the podium, on the podium, on the panel where Arbelino has been off the podium, off the podium, off the podium that's not going to get you to a championship at all if you keep doing that. So it was a good race. I don't want to say it was a great race, but it was not the Moto3 race for sure. Uh, no, absolutely not. And I mean, Acosta didn't sort of give it to Vietti. He did track him for quite a while. And at some point, I think it was towards the end, lap 21, I think in my notes, he very nearly tagged the back of Vietti in turn nine. And after that, I think he just thought, okay, let's just drop this back a little bit. But I know we tend to blow a lot of smoke up Acosta's backside, but I think with good reason. But when you consider he's been nursing that ankle injury, and that was probably still affecting him a bit. He had a cane still, I think. I saw him with the cane in the pits, I believe. Yeah. So bearing that in mind, not to mention all of the stuff swirling around about his future in terms of where's he going to be next year. I mean, that is all very, very destabilizing, potentially. Well, that kind of happened to Acosta in Moto3. Because everybody, yeah. like... He ran off. He was leaving the championship, and then he got into a spat where he started to visit tracks that he didn't know. Right? Um, gosh, I can't remember. I uh, can't remember who was running for the champ. Foggia was running for the championship. Foggia yeah. had been there. Foggia started to piece together a season there towards the end, and then Acosta finally got back to Europe, places that he knew. His contract was settled. He was going to Moto GP Moto Two, and. He turned it right back on again. You know, the kid was 17. He got distracted. Yeah. You know, he hasn't been distracted. He has had issues, right? He's got an ankle that hurts, whatever. But he has not lost sight of what he's trying to do, and that is win a Moto2 world title. And he's succeeding at it because he's he's being more consistent than his main championship rival, who happens to be Arbolino. And yeah. now you've got people like Agura, who is sort of – got his game back again. Chantra has always sort of been a specialist at Austria. Um, Dixon's the wild card in all this, right, for where he slots in between everybody. So it's going to be a fun championship to watch the rest of the way. 
yeah, yeah. But I mean, with Acosta, just to finish off my thought on that, as I say, he didn't give it to Vietti, but at the same time, we know he's quite a canny operator. I mean, he's got a pretty wise head on young shoulders. Vietti's absolutely nowhere in the championship, despite the fact he's just won the race. But so Acosta's just playing, playing the, you know, playing the game, isn't he, in terms of Arbolino's who he's looking out for, and he was several places behind. So yeah, he's the he is the real deal. Yep. In terms of the championship, Acosta gains another six points on Arbolino. He's got 176 to Arbolino's 164, so that's a 12-point lead. Dixon's on 117, Canet's on 96, Lopez on 92, and Salach on 84. It is between Arbolino and Acosta for this title. Yeah. My money's on the kid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, form, you can't ignore form, can you? And as much of a talent as Arbolino is, and he is a very, very good rider, but he's just had a dip for whatever reason. Um, again, that might be partly all with the stuff that's been swirling around about his future until the last few days when it's been announced that he's staying put for next year. So maybe it'll be interesting to see if he kind of steadies down a little bit and gets back to the a bit back towards the front as a result of his future being, or short-term future anyway, being resolved. Uh, just to pick back up on the Dixon thing, um, it, it transpires that over the Silverstone weekend when a lot of this MotoGP, is it happening or not? The stuff was kicking off or, or getting resolved. So that must have been a distraction for him, plus the weather, plus the home race, the crowd, etc., etc. So you can understand why things unraveled a bit. Um, it was a shame, but you know, to come back and score a solid fourth place on the back of that, having been very sort of contrite and polite in his apology to Binder and the team, I thought that was a yeah, that was a sort of a creditable return, immediate return to form for Jake. Um, and, and hopefully he'll you know still bag another win or two. Jim, one thing we haven't mentioned is that yeah. Sean Dillon Kelly appears to be out long-term with arm trouble. Do you know what's going on there? I tried to find out from some people who might be in the know when I was in Pittsburgh. No one seems to know. The guess is it's arm pump, but I, I, don't, I, I don't have anything 100%, and he's just missing. Um He's definitely had a second corrective procedure done to a some, previous yeah. car- is it carpal tunnel syndrome? I think so. Is yeah, the official yeah. name, and when they have surgery done to remove a membrane or something, don't they? But yeah, I hope it hasn't got some sort of nasty, lingering, or longer term infection going on there. But it yeah. sounds as if he's out for quite a few races. Seems that way because he's been replaced, which um, is odd. Um, yeah, because normally they come back from that sort of surgery fairly quickly, don't they? Yeah. So you hope there's not something a bit worse that's gone on there, but we'll have to obviously try yeah, and find out. I, I'm, I'm scared for him in the idea that he won't have a ride, which means selfishly he'll be back to Moto America where he'll definitely have a superbike ride. Somebody will put him on a superbike. Yeah. Which, given the state of where things are at play, that would be great. But I'd much. I want him to succeed in Europe, but and maybe not on the cards. And um, how about do we know what Joe Roberts is up to next year? Because I hear that no. he's out of the Ital Trans team, but I don't know if he's been confirmed to be riding somewhere else as of. Yet. I have heard nothing about where he may ride next year, other than he's splitting with the team. Mm. Um, again, you got that Moto America rumor, but I don't know if there's enough room for him and Sean Dillon Kelly. Mm. so i don't know 
Okay, we'll have we'll to find out. Our, I mean, we're, we, we're just out. It's a part of the silly season. Stay tuned, right? We just don't know the answers to the questions yet. Just before we move off Moto Two, I know we've got to do the championship, but one piece of news I read uh, on the Moto. So I don't. I think this has probably come out in the last couple of days. Cito Pons and his team are well. Cito Pons is bowing out of the championship after nearly 40 years, I think Oof, Wow! at the end of this season, I believe his team has been bought by another operation, but we do know that Kanet is out of the ponds team next year with the change of the team ownership. Who knows what that means with contracts? I mean, Sergio Garcia is having a really good year for a rookie, but on the other hand, Kanet is having a, an absolute nightmare really, isn't he? And so where he lands next year is also up in the air at the minute. Okay, let's look at the Moto2 World Championship. Acosta now leads on 176 points. He is 100. He is 12 points ahead of Arbelino on 164. Then it's Dixon, Canet, and Lopez, and Salach. All right, MotoGP sprint, Rich. Um, this won't take well, long. <laughs> no, um, Benyaya wins. There you go. I just don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 shameful, but. Benyaya, uh, Benyaya was on pole position, followed by uh, Vinales, Bender, Miller, Alex Marquez, and Marini. Now, Vinales being there is interesting because this has kind of been like a little bogey track for him in times go by. But to be there on the Aprilia with his teammate, nowhere even close to him. Again, Gary loves this. Here's these, these times when he's almost unbeatable and times where He's nowhere. The conundrum that is Maverick Vinales, or the mystery, or the yeah. what do you call it? The enigma. I don't know what the, the enigma. Thank you. That's the, exactly you the right word. Yeah. God help you out for once. <laughs> there you go. Touche. Uh, yep. Uh, literally, that's the race. I mean, I, I'm I'm not kidding, people. It was Benyaya took off and he was gone. Bender would follow him home, in in second position, those two ran away from each other. Um, Martin has a clumsy race whereby uh, he uh, knocks, uh, he goes by Miller and he outbreaks himself and he's sort of off the track. He comes back, finally gets by, gets back. He takes Marini down at the chicane uh, and there was no penalty on that one. And that was really weird because I thought he left that one so late. I don't know. I was shocked at first. I saw different angles of it. I kind of went back and went, Martin really doesn't know that he's there because Martin hangs off the bike a lot farther than anybody else. So that's a rub in his racing instant. If you're on the outside, you're going to lose. So maybe that one is correct with no penalty. You have a thought? I, I thought it was a racing incident pretty Fair much. I, I mean, I think Marini possibly could have given it up, but he tried to hang it around the outside and... A little taps all it takes to put you down, isn't it? So it was a tough one. It was a hard move by Martin. Um, bearing in mind what had happened at the start, which I think you've just alluded to, but I mean, we ought to perhaps go into that a bit more. So off the start, Martin, again, a bit clumsy, goes sort of piling into turn one. I, it, there are so many riders involved in this. That are yeah. Not helped by a very, very slow start in Maverick Vinales, as is his usual way. He can't get off the line. And so that took Bezecchi down, didn't it? Yeah, Bezecchi, uh, Quattraro, Oliveira, and Martin are all there. Like Martin goes way up the inside. He bumps Quattraro yeah. in the sandwich, which knocks Bezecchi off, and then it's just chaos. Like it's just weird. There's again, 
Vinyala's uh he seems Bezeki, um, you know, he he doesn't there's no penalty that was given there. They said, Well, we're gonna look at it after the race. Like Yes. Well, okay. Hold on a second. Why I don't understand this. Well, we're gonna look at it after the race thing. I'm I'm sorry. Make a decision about whether it's pertinent or not, because I'm sorry, if they're two different things, which they are, it's a sprint race, half the distance of a regular race, and a race on Sunday, why do I have to carry a, my indiscretion that happens in that race have anything to do with the race that I'm going to go to tomorrow? It, 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 there's no bearing on it, unless you, unless, unless starting positions were to be determined based on how you finished in the sprint, then yes, there's a huge bearing that's going to happen over there. So yes, maybe then you would you postpone a penalty to the next race, but I don't like that. And I, you know, eventually it did come around to where Martin got a long lap penalty yeah. to be applied in the next race or in the race on Sunday, I should say. Yeah. Again, this is the weird part of the we've been off and on about this all year. Consistency. I have no idea. I just. Yeah, it, it is very strange how they couldn't make a decision on that until after the race, and yet they made a more or less immediate one on the incident with Marini. No, okay, there was only two bikes involved in that, and I suppose there was more analysis to be done in terms of the the, the incident off the start line, but it's not as if they had anything else to look at in the race, is it? I mean, it was a pretty boring affair other than what uh, Martin was up to. So, yeah, curious as to why they couldn't sort of rule that he would take the long lap in the sprint. Because they had, I would have thought, plenty of time to do that. But unless, unless there's some rule in the rule book that if it's a start line incident, lap one, they uh, review. I don't know. I, I don't know. In general, they let lap one kind of go, which I get. But there are ones that are just egregious, right? Like you can see from the helicopter, this dude was just way late on the brakes, and now we have bowling for riders. So yeah, you got to do something about that. But they chose yeah. not to. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I didn't see if they released a statement as to precisely why they had given him the long lap, but whether it was, you know, over ambitious riding or one of those sort of things that we, we, we chuckle about, but it did go in too hot. No doubt about it. Um, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off there, but, um, Martin does get a long lap penalty in the race and it was for the bump that he put on to Quattro in the beginning of the race, in the beginning of the race, which, yeah, you know, okay. Fair enough. You decided to, to put that in there, but, that's really all that happens in this race is you're getting ready to go to the main event on Sunday afternoon. And uh, I don't know. Can I put this, can I put this delicately? It's a carbon copy of the one on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, talk about nothing written down in my notes, hardly anything at all. I mean, other than Maverick Vinales again, goes backwards off the start. Um, that was notable. Um, other than that, I mean, yeah, nothing much to say, really. It was, it was, it was, it was bad. I mean, Bender and Benyaya get out front, and that's it. And Bender does pressure Benyaya at the beginning. He really does. He does try, but he's in the arrow wash. The front tire now is heated up, and Bender can't do anything about it, so he has to drop back to a a safe 1.2, 1.3 second gap to keep the tire underneath of him. And they ride around in formation. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's something, I mean, you know, it had to be a bad race when they were showing you the race for 10th, 11th and 12th. <laughs> yeah. 
That's what they were showing you. Well, there was nothing else to see, was there? Yeah. No, I mean, there was good racing. There is good racing there. There's good racing in the back of the pack. I'm not against us being allowed to see that. Not whatsoever. But I just as a point of reference, it was just a news fest to where we we're back in there. Now, Oliveira did show up in the pits. Um, he was in there. Uh, according to Simon Crafar, like a wheel weight had gotten off the front end of the bike and it was just vibrating violently, which yeah, oof, that's bad news. That's a bad, bad feeling, man. When I'm, I've had that happen when I never technically had a wheel weight come off of my bike when I was racing, but we did have, uh, t- there was, it's a construction issue is what it was. It's, it's the construction Dunlap builds tires in the United kingdom and they build tires here in, I think in New York somewhere. And the sidewalls for the tires that come from Great Britain were, at least back in the 90s, were way stiffer than the sidewall constructions that Dunlap had here because we have a lot more bumps in our racetracks. And boy, I would get to just some weird chatter, vibrating oscillation, and it's just super scary. So I totally understand why Oliveira chose to be in the pits and bring that bike in, a super scary incident. And luckily, it was only just a wheel weight. I had rather hope that he withdrew just so you didn't have to showcase that god-awful special paint livery Ugh. scheme barbie film thing going on there i thought it was so embarrassed to be seen on the thing it was absolutely vile to look at so the fact that he did pull in i mean he doesn't have he'll look back on this year and think if i did i do something wrong in a previous life won't he because i mean he's just had literally no good luck at all this year poor old Oliveira. and when he has finished he's been good i mean look at silverstone but yeah, I mean, it's not been a happy year for him, has it? And rumours abound about the RNF team getting into sort of financial difficulties and stuff. So you hope he's uh, got a safe seat somewhere next year because he's a top-class rider in my view. But that bike was just egregious to look at, really dreadful. Uh, Miller did his usual thing. He went backwards. He lost three places in like one lap. Yeah. Apologize for the dogs there. It's... uh. That was just crazy. Uh, I mean, I don't know what else there really is. I mean, I think at one point, Bezeki was trying to get around Alex Marquez and went wide at turn one. He went too deep. But, I mean, there's really nothing that happens in this race. It is – it was bad. <laughs> I mean, Joe, if you're out Joe front, crashed. Oh, yes. Like, he's always – I don't think he's finished not, racing not, the Honda at all. Not terribly Ma- oh, revealing. Oh, and Marquez, but... did, Marquez scored points. He actually got go. four points. He finished 15th due to attrition and he stayed on the motorcycle. Yeah. He's the only person who stayed on the bike all year, except for, you know, Renz at Coda. I'm like, wow. Oh, that just, was good. That was good for Mark. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was. I think it was good for him just to not fall off. We're being very glib about this race, but there is really not much to kind of make it noteworthy in any way, shape or form, other than the fact that it was, a you know, again, a, a pretty dominant result for Banyaya. But it does, again, I don't want to repeat what I said earlier on, but it does very much highlight how track to track you get very different results or, or different races with the same bikes out on track. So it's interesting to, com- to compare and contrast, again, Silverstone for all of its well, not for all of it, for its few faults, Silverstone. Although I really like Silverstone because I've been there so many times. But yeah, compare and contrast and two completely different races. One a real kind of right down to the last lap, literally like down to the last lap. 
and then this one where you just couldn't wait for the last lap to come so and for it all to be over so hopefully better things await when we go next time to catalonia i think isn't it catalonia is this coming weekend it's september one through three and that coincides with labor day holiday bank holiday monday for you guys rich or in your terms so that's going to be fun. So at least we got an extra day to watch. No, no, we, no. Bank holidays tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, is it? Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Not ne- not next weekend, unfortunately. But oh, I thought uh, I mean, it was. I, I'm never. A, I, I just for whatever reason, I'm not a big fan of the Barcelona track. I don't know why. I just don't remember it really ever producing terribly great racing that one either. Although it's probably somewhere in the middle if you compare it with say Austria and Silverstone. But but it'd be yeah. Let's see what happens. But Ducati's on that straight are going to be hard to hard to contain. I think. Yeah, I do think that. I... The only people who've got a chance to run with them are going to be probably the KTMs. And you might see a repeat. You might see, you might see a Bender, Ben Yaya, Ben Bender combination. Do you, th- yeah, not to go back to silly season, but I'm going to ask this just because I'm curious. Do you think Bastianini's got a ride on the factory team next year? Well, you do wonder if there's a, a, a strange thing going to come along in terms of, Ducati also sort of have a bit of a conundrum in terms of who to put where at the minute, don't they? Um, I can see Bez going there. And I can see Bastianini sliding back to to Pramac. I rate Bastianini. I rate Bastianini. I mean, he's just been terrible luck now, whether Ducati... So I don't know. I'm just I'm just curious. Yeah. I, 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 deep down, I think Ducati will honour his contract partly because he was, again, very badly injured with that shoulder. And that might well still be quite troublesome for him because shoulders are notoriously hard to fix over the short term, at least. So maybe they'll they'll stick with it. But it really hasn't been the kind of inter-team battle that we hoped and expected, has it, at all? And there were a couple of people saying that Bastianini fitted so well within that um, Grassini setup, that sort of family atmosphere, and a few people, in terms of journos, I don't know if it's Matt Oxley or something like, like somebody like that, kind of questioning how being in the works team, how that would either suit or not suit him, because it's very different. There's a lot more commitments. There's a lot obviously higher expectations. There's more money, but uh, yeah, a lot more pressure and a completely different sort of atmosphere. Now we haven't really got to see because because he was out. That was the first weekend, wasn't it, in Portimao, where he got taken out by Marini and, and bust his shoulder, and so far he's a shadow of the rider that we saw last year so hmm. but but i mean he did all that on grassini bike if he went back to grassini he'd have the same bike that he has this year and he may become that rider again well yeah you never know again it's people and it's people and rider and how they gel the onshu holgardo thing yeah you do kind of get the feeling now, and it's obviously with the benefit of hindsight, but with the sort of year that, okay, he had a clumsy weekend in Austria, for sure. But Martin's had a good year. Mm. He's kind of stood up, got his shoulders back and said, okay. I mean, he's on a works bike, for goodness sake. He's just not in the, the full fat works team. But there's lots of support there, I'm sure. Lots of Ducati technicians operating in that Pramac setup. So he's he's not been given the particularly short end of the stick, I don't think. But you could see why he would be feeling pretty smug about the fact that he's looking over and thinking, yeah, you should have put me there. And he possibly would be giving Banyar more of a run for his money. 
who can say? I mean, that's happening in a parallel universe somewhere else, isn't it? But um, that that scenario playing out. But yeah, but uh, you do wonder what's going to happen with these Ducatis. I kind of deep down, I got a feeling Bezeki might stay put in the VR46 camp, you know, even if he will be on a year old bike. But it doesn't seem to have been a big problem for him this year, and you don't see why it would be a big problem for him next year. So, um, in which case, does Morbidelli then slot into Pramac? I mean, that's a big big move if Morbidelli ends up there really because he's coming off what two horrifying years on the Yamaha but still highly rated so and on a, on the best bike in the championship you know you never know what will happen no speaking of championship let's look at the points yeah uh, and finish this one up so Benyaya is on 251 points he leads Bezeki by 68 points Starting to look like a done deal, isn't it? It does seem like it feels like it. Anything can happen. Anything can happen, but it sure feels like a done deal. Bender's on 160 and third. Zarko's on 125 and Marini's on 120, which is interesting. The only factory, the only factory Ducati is Ben Yaya, right? Because Bezeki's on a year old bike at Moon at Mooney. Zarko's on Premac, and that's a factory Ducati bike, but not. I don't think it's the same spec as Benyaya's. No, it's probably one step one, behind, isn't one it? One iteration of parts One tiny behind. step, yeah. Yeah, one small step. Bender's the factory KTM, and the Marini is the other Mooney Ducati. Now, if you look at that from a championship standpoint, again, I could see this happening. I could see Rossi getting full factory bikes next year. It's, it's well, plausible. It's plausible. Simon Crayford did ask, um, oh, what's his name? Is it Paolo Chibati? Uh, okay. The tall did guy. That he, um, if, did if ask he did, him I didn't that, hear it. Did if ask did, him I, that at some really? point over the weekend. And it was a fairly um, clear cut. No, we can only do four works bikes. Hmm. I didn't but, hear that. So I take that back. Yeah. But I take I take your point. I mean, it, it is odd, really, that Valentino Rossi, I mean, you know, the GOAT, depend on your point of view doesn't get works bikes in that team yeah it's, it's always struck me as slightly at odds with what you would expect really but you know contracts are there already with with pramac i suppose so and if ducati du- genuinely cannot produce another two and support two more full fat works bikes then okay there's your reason but but then you gotta ask yourself does rossi as the goat go someplace else well yeah, um, I mean, if R if R and F, I mean, this is really speculative. If R and F can't put put bikes on the grid, do you don't think Aprilia would want to be associated to Rossi? Oh, I'm sure he, the, he started out his career riding Aprilias. Yeah. Now, I arguably, get it. from a historical point of view, Jim, arguably his relationship with Aprilia, as you, you're just alluding to, is better than Ducati because I mean, the Ducati experiment when Rossi was riding did not I mean, go well. Yeah. Uh, but he is, did sign a deal as a brand ambassador for Yamaha. Yes, true. And we were. What spe- does that mean, though? I we don't were thinking that they would be on Yamahas, weren't we? But maybe that is yet still to come at maybe. some point in the future once Yamaha. Uh, another news story I saw going back a couple of weeks now is that Yamaha, I think, I don't know if Cal Crutchlow's wildcarding at Mategi later in the year, but he's bringing kind of a, a next year's bike mm. to run out on as a wildcard at Mategi. Nice. The photo didn't look that different to this year's bike to me, but it's not really how it looks. It's what's underneath that's the, the key point there. But um, 
So we'll get to see a glimpse of what Yamaha have. They they could year. literally they could literally move, put an offset in the triple tree of one degree, and it may solve everything. Yeah. Along with a millimeter of 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 uh, change in rear suspension, and it would solve the entire problem, and we would never be able to see it in pictures. Quattro hasn't been pulling his punches in terms of what he's been saying to the press. He kind of said, I think, something to, along the lines of, this is Yamaha's last chance in terms of he what they out, give him yeah. next year, and then, or, or he'll be gone. Where he goes is a different question, but he's not pulling his punches, that's for sure. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I get his desire to have a competitive motorcycle. You're wasting your best years. I get Marquez's desire for a competitive motorcycle so that he literally can finish off his years and try to get, he wants one, if not two more championships. Yeah. I think we all know why. And I just don't know. Are you, are you willing, you know, I don't think there's any room at the end for it, for those guys anywhere. The only one that you could maybe see happening is Quattro leaving for Aprilia. Because Alesha yes, yeah. isn't going to ride all the time. Well, I think Alesha said he only wants one or two years maximum, and he, then he wants to retire. He wants to uh, go, to, go to be a test that. rider and wild card or something. I think or golf and cycle competitively like some of these guys do. But uh, he's made it clear that he's not around for very, very much longer. But the thing of it is, if you're Aprilia and you had a chance to snatch Quattro would you? Yes. You would, but what are you going to do? Are you going to throw Vinales out the door? Yes, because okay, Gary would uh, Gary would agree with you. Well, again, <laughs> all you can do is much better weekend in terms of where he qualified. But if you can't get off the line, and we're always saying this, even back to the Yamaha days, Vinales had difficulty getting a bike off the line, which is kind of curious in terms of how what a robotic exercise it is now in terms of all the electronics and you press this button and you just hold the throttle open and dump the clutch so it's hard to understand really why he's consistently so troubled with his starts but going back to the to the Valentino thing I think the only thing we can say with absolute 100% cast iron gold clad certainty is that he would never run Hondas as a satellite that is never happening ever or, or not until he gets his NSR 500, anyway. Yes, that's that he was true. Promised and never got. So that might be a, a point to wrap up. But yeah, that's yes, the I one thing we can say with absolute certainty is that you will never see Honda in the VR46 garage. Not at all. All right, folks, that's a very long show for two races. Hopefully, we get you all caught up, and uh, we promise to do better getting shows out it was just one of those things where rich and i could not get together and then you were at uh snetterton i think rich for bsb or oh, caldwell uh, park uh snetterton i went to a little bit earlier in the year and then uh, i was at um thruxton thruxton okay so it was thruxton yeah i was at moto america in pittsburgh so that's a weekend that we lost there but uh we'll get back to those on the next show until we come back to you again on the next show remember everyone ride safe cheers